Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to, my, to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you have worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you to Alex and Katie for leading us well. Uh, for those of you who have not been here, we have been spending this entire year, 2023, and we'll be spending half of 2024 in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm calling it the spicy gospel because as you can see from what Alex just read, uh, Jesus gets pretty spicy, and we're kind of in the spiciest moments in the gospel as Jesus is uh, already in chapter 12 beginning to approach the cross and he's getting less and less patient with things. And so uh, Jesus is going to appear pretty pointed and that's okay. Uh, but there is some difficulty with this for me because when I was a young man, uh, even before I was a pastor, when I was a young man, trying to discern and think through, do I, do I want to do this pastor preaching thing? Uh, one of the things that scared me, other than hospital visits, uh, one of the things that scared me uh, is the fact that I was going to have to preach passages in the Bible that made me incredibly uncomfortable. Some of those passages are uncomfortable just because they're weird, right? Um, God chasing down Moses because he to kill him and his kids because they, he didn't circumcise his sons. It's a weird passage, okay? Uh, that I could eventually chalk up to, well, that would just be fun to explore what that's about. But then there are passages that are weird and difficult because they say really hard things. And, and they say hard things that will be hard to hear for you as the audience, but also hard for me to preach because I feel on some level like there's a fair amount of hypocrisy, right? Like, this is the last thing I want to be is somebody who stands up and preaches something that I don't practice, right? And so I admit from the beginning that, that, I mean, just this is the nature of doing what I do is that I preach passages that challenge me, not just passages that challenge you. Passages like this one. Over the years, uh, so, so at some point when I was discerning this, I thought to myself, okay, self, if you're going to do this job, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to make the commitment that you're going to preach these passages for what they are and not try to soft pedal them, right? And that became really uh, difficult, uh, especially when I was an associate pastor. As a senior pastor, when I say absurd things, uh, when I say what the passage says and it's radical and it's scary and it's frustrating to people, 
I can just deal with it, right? Like I get an email or a phone call from a text from somebody, and like I, I just deal with it, we'll deal, we'll deal with it. But as an associate pastor, it was a lot harder, right? Because often people would get mad if I'm preaching a text and I say what a text says, people would get mad, and they wouldn't come talk to me, they'd go talk to my boss, right? And so it did not always sit well with my bosses when I decided, you know, I was going to preach a passage for what it was. So I remember one time I was in a larger, wealthy church that shall not be named, and, um, and I had just finished preaching a sermon on uh, Christian responsibility to the poor, and on Monday morning, my direct boss called me into his office, and he's sitting on the other side of his desk, and he points his finger at me. And he says, the only reason you preach the way you do is because you grew up poor. Maybe you should get therapy instead. Ever the Enneagram 8 and contrarian, I responded, maybe the reason you don't preach the way I do is because you have to protect the rich. Maybe you should get therapy instead. Um, I, our friend Joseph is, uh, uh, does some comedian stuff and I have seen him do improv and I'm always jealous at like how quick he is. I can't do that if I'm trying to be funny. I can do that when I need to be mean. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am at this passage. You can imagine that comment to my boss didn't go over so well. <laughs> um, but as I, as I came to this passage, I thought about that moment with my boss. And it occurred to me, though he may have, he not may have, he did in, intend it as a passive-aggressive kind of insult. Uh, I wonder if there's actually a blessing in it. I wonder if the fact that me growing up poor in rural Missouri coming home and not knowing, you know, is there going to be food on the table or are we going to have to move again? I wonder if that did, in fact, shape my sensitivity to passages like this and made me uh, more willing to engage the hard things that, that Jesus sometimes says. Maybe, in fact, there is a beauty in what he thought was an insult. Maybe even something that lined up with Jesus' own life. We know, for example, from Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew up poor. We know, for example, from that, that his poverty actually influenced and framed much of his ministry when, for example, his hometown synagogue tried to kill him after he preached about good news for the poor and how the good news he was proclaiming was supposed to be good news for the poor, not just the spiritually poor, but the actual poor. We know that a few chapters later, he blesses the poor, not just the poor in spirit like in Matthew, but actually blesses the poor themselves. And throughout his ministry, he pronounces woes and warnings against the rich, as we saw in 624. Even claiming, as we will see in two chapters, that the wealthy have to give up their wealth to follow him. So this is, this, is, this is not just like a, a, a weird, you know, liberal thing that Jesus says. Like, this is a thing that's occurring throughout particularly the Gospel of Luke. T 
To Jesus, it seems like divestment of one's privileges and wealth are actually a good investment. The divestment is a good investment, which is completely contrary to the way we think about not only investment, but we think about wealth and we think about financial security and economics. That there's something about the way Jesus sees even our economic world and our economic responsibilities that is completely at odds, not only with his world, but also with ours. In fact, one of the things that happens is that, and, and I think this is what drove me to think about this when I was a young man thinking about becoming a pastor, and I was scared about preaching passages like this, is that because, because so often when I had heard passages like this, they were overly spiritualized or they were backpedaled, right? And it became really difficult for the people I was listening to, and I would get frustrated and be like, why can't you just say what the passage says? Like, why can't we just hear Jesus' words? And the reason is because once you let that cat out of the bag, you actually start seeing that this stuff is everywhere. For example, one scholar said, of the 31 parables in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the 31 parables told across those Gospels, more than half, 19, reflect directly, not incidentally, not spiritually, not metaphorically, directly, directly on class, inequality, worker pay, indebtedness, the misuse of wealth, and the distribution of wealth. I would guess that we wouldn't know that merely from hearing much of the preaching that many of us have probably heard, including preaching I've probably done. This is a big deal to Jesus. So I ask myself, like, why do we, why do we neglect something that is such a big deal to Jesus? And here's what I came up with. One of the things that we need to understand when we approach our Bibles is that we are all people coming to the Bible within a particular context, within a particular society, a society that has shaped us and formed us in certain ways. And one of the ways that American society is formed is through fear of particularly, historically, socialism and communism, right? I mean, we had a big thing that lasted for 50 plus years called the Cold War, where we were absolutely afraid of communism. And anything that smells like communism, including socialism, which is different than communism, but you wouldn't know that when you watch most of our media. So we have this culturally shaped fear of communism and socialism that affects then the way we read the Bible and what we allow ourselves to see in the Bible. Now, hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus was a socialist, and I'm not saying that Jesus was a communist, because guess what? Socialism and communism as philosophies are the product of modernity, and modernity came about 1,800 years after Jesus. Okay, Jesus could not have been a socialist or communist. These philosophies did not exist before Jesus. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying that our cultural formation as a reaction to socialism and communism have made us unable to read these texts for as spicy as they are. 
which means to some degree we are more influenced by our ideologies and our politicians and their fear than we are by Jesus. Today's parable is one of those 19. It begins with a guy in the crowd telling, not asking, telling Jesus, act as a lawyer between me and my brother, who he won't share the family estate with me, the inheritance. It suggests culturally that he's the younger brother. In their world, the older brother inherits everything, right? And so he is frustrated because his brother, his father has died, his brother has inherited everything, and he wants his brother to share some of it. And so he comes to Jesus and says, tell Jesus, tell my brother to share with me, Jesus. And at first, Jesus initially responds by telling them that settling civil disputes is not really what Jesus is about. But then, Jesus goes underneath that, and he makes a moral assessment of the question, or the statement, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. To which, my response is, Wait, this, this guy just wants like a share of the, the inheritance. Like, why is this greedy? I mean, doesn't it make sense that he would want his brother to share with him? And the answer that Jesus gives to that question is the parable that follows. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for any, all of my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die on this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? To which again, I respond what? Like, if I was already confused by the guy who just wanted, a, a, like, a bit of the inheritance, now I'm saying, wait, 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 wait. Why, why is building a bigger barn greedy? Like, it seems like it's just good investment. It's good business. Until I think we hear this from the perspective of an agrarian society, so a society very different than ours, uh, then we see that there is probably some pretty messed up things happening here. So let me unpack how this parable would have sounded to them. Notice that we have a wealthy man. The text says he is rich before his fields produce a grace harvest. So he's already wealthy when the story starts, before we know anything else about him. Now understand, in the ancient world, you have 1% of the people are wealthy. There's no middle class, and 99% of people are living at subsistence level or below subsistence level. Now the, the only reason that happens in their world and ours is because 1% of people are taking way more than they need. God has designed the creation, and I think scientists have actually demonstrated this to us. Our 
creation, our world actually produces enough to feed everyone. But because of human greed, because of the greed of corporations, because of the greed of the 1% wealthiest in the world, because of human greed and people taking more than they need, not everyone in the world has food. It was even more stark in Jesus' day. On top of this man's wealth, he has a year where he has a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So he has a year where there is a great yield. So large that he can't even fit the yield in his already large barns. The owning of barns itself is an indicator that he's wealthy in the ancient world. The problem for him then is this. The crop is so large that if he sells it, it floods the market and drives the individual price of the crops down so that in the end, he makes less money. So what does he do? He builds bigger barns. Barns where the crop will sit. Notice he doesn't sell it. Notice he doesn't release it. If he sells it, it floods the market and he makes less money. If he gives it away to the poor, it floods the market and he makes no money. So he builds bigger barns, he keeps it to himself. And then he congratulates himself. Instead of flooding the market with the product, he makes a good business decision. He builds bigger barns, maintains the high price on the crops, and by default guarantees that the 99% will continue to be hungry. Now, to feel this parable, not just intellectually understand it, to feel it, I think we have to move away from an excuse that we readily go to, which is the excuse of, okay, but that, that's not what he intended. He didn't, he didn't intend to leave the 99% starving. He was, just, he was just making a good business decision. It may not have been his intention, but it doesn't matter what his intention is in a world where 99% of people are hungry and children are going to bed and waking up in the morning without enough to eat. It doesn't matter what he intended. New Testament scholar Joel Green, who's also a Methodist, says this. He says, the farmer lays out the course of his action in isolation from others whose well-being is affected by his decision. The issue is not what this man intended. The issue is that this man did not intentionally consider the vulnerable in his economic decision making. He may have been a good businessman. Apparently he was a great businessman, but that does not make him a good neighbor. And holy love for neighbor, not holy love for business 
is key to understanding Luke's understanding of the kingdom of God. Being a good business person is not the same thing as being a good person by Jesus' standards. And a good person understands that in the perspective of eternity, divestment is actually a good long-term investment. So here's the question I have. I get to the end of this parable. I'm reading it, I'm studying it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to preach this thing. Here's the question I have. What would Jesus have wanted him to do? Like, what was he supposed to do? And then maybe that can help me understand what I'm supposed to do. I think the first thing is a reappraisal of our theology. I think the first thing Jesus would have this man do is recognize that all he has came from God to begin with. When Jesus calls this man a fool, he's not saying to the man, uh, hey, you're, you're being dumb. He's not, he's not insulting him intellectually. Fool is a moral assessment in wisdom literature in the Bible. A fool in biblical literature refers to someone who makes decisions without taking into account their accountability before God or their responsibility toward their neighbor is a person who makes decisions without taking into account their accountability before God or their responsibility toward their neighbor. The man in this parable is only thinking about himself. No matter what his intent otherwise, he's only thinking about himself. In fact, Luke makes this really clear. Notice the subtleties that become clear when they pile up. The man said, referred to my barns, my wheat, my goods. He even at one point says, self, I'll talk to myself. I mean, Luke is going out of his way to show how self-centered this man is. But really, in reality, he assumes all of this is his by right. All of this is his because he earned it. All of this belongs to him. And he is ignoring the reality that all he has is God's gift. Even if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, the third day of the creation story, you remember what God says. In day two, God separated the land from the water. And on day three, God called forth the vegetation out of the earth. The vegetation itself is God's gift. Preparing for the human creature on day six to be sustained by the produce that is a gift of God. Everything that grows in this man's farm begins with God saying, let it be, let it be, let it be. It is a gift of God. His entire existence and wealth is premised upon the fact that God gives, but he foolishly never takes this into account. And he also never takes into account that he should understand that God's gifts are there for us to gift to others. He doesn't consider that divestment for the sake of others is a good long-term investment. Holy love for neighbor is characterized by status quo challenging generosity. 
Notice I did not just say holy love for neighbor is characterized by generosity because we would just hear the generosity, the word generosity and not think anything above, about it. I said status quo changing generosity. We are to be generous in such a way that the status quo, the way the world works is turned on its head. But to quote Augustine, this man didn't even realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. And friends, this is, this is just good Methodism. Jesus is being a great Wesleyan here. You, 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 for those of you long-term Methodists, you know what Wesley said. Make all you can, save all you can, Give all you can. But Wesley didn't stop just saying that, did he? Wesley said something else. Wesley said, when a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, we'll stop right there for a second. He, he's building on this, off this idea that would later be popularized by Max Weber in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And what he says is that the Protestant, you've heard of the Protestant work ethic, right? The idea was that when Protestants convert, they become trustworthy, they become honest, they become hard workers. And that produces uh, people who move up in society, they get more wealth, and, then, uh, and thus capitalism expands. Now, there's a lot of uh, blind spots in this philosophy, right? But it's the idea rooted in, that, that Protestant, in, in the Protestant work ethic, and it also uh, carries with it some of the assumption that we have inherited that wealthy people deserve what they have, right? And that people who are poor are often poor because they make bad moral decisions, Right? Those assumptions are not grounded in reality, but those assumptions are grounded within an ideological framework that we have all inherited. Wesley is sort of building off this. He's saying, he's saying listen, I, I understand. I've seen this happen when, when people get converted to Methodism. They become industrious. They become creative. They become hard workers. They, they lay off the, the alcohol. They get their, their life in order. They start saving money. Okay? I've seen it happen over and over. Now, he says, man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious, trustworthy, and prosperous. Now, if that man, and he's going to appeal to his phrase, his saying, if that man, when he gets all he can, and he saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that man. I don't have to look at the wealthiest 1% of my society and just say, wow, that's a really bad news for them. I can look right at my own life and say, that's, that's a difficult word for me. But I think it would be problematic to merely leave this at an individual level. Because I don't think what Jesus is calling here for here would just be some sort of individualistic turning of morality. 
Rather, I think what Jesus would be calling for here is for us to reflect on it intentionally on how our economic practices impact the most vulnerable. And that is both me individually and us collectively. To think about how our systems of buying and spending and trading impact people who don't have what we have. To in fact ask the question, why do I have so much while so, uh, so many other people have so little? The majority of people in our world live, just like in Jesus' world, live at barely subsistence level. I was on a bus this week. This is free, by the way, not in my notes. I was on a bus this week going to the Redwoods. And the uh, bus driver is like one of those really charismatic tour guides, right? He's just like big, bigger than life personality. And he goes, so you all love San Francisco? Isn't this greater than your, you know, the reputation that San Francisco have? And he's like, apparently, I guess San Francisco has a bad reputation. And he looks at me, he's like, what do you think, Tennessee? And I was like, look, man, you, you all don't have nothing on the reputation Memphis has. So like, well, this woman behind me, she goes, I know, right? It's like we live in a third world country now. San Francisco's terrible. Memphis. And I was just like, what kind of privilege? You're on a flipping tour bus talking about you live in a third world country. This is how we think. We live in a world where so many people are starving because of our economic systems and buying practices. But we're like, oh, I live in a third world country on my tour bus. It's that kind of mentality that is destroying us. As we contribute to the global economy, our practices and habits of buying and spending actually make the poor poorer and the wealthier wealthier. On an individual level, I say, I, I can admit, I, I don't think about where I buy my shoes or why my t-shirts are cheap. But we know, don't we? We know. The job of the CEO in a capitalist society is to make sure the shareholders get as much money as possible. So what do they do? They pay workers a lower wage. And in America, when those workers start to organize and become unions, they say, what? What are we going to do next? Buy, right? We're going somewhere else to another country. Why? Because you can pay someone, a child, five cents a day to make your tennis shoes and your t-shirts. And then they buy off politicians so that there aren't taxes, whatever those things come into our society. And so we get cheap products. They get a lot of money. And I don't see it happen directly. So I get to naively assume it doesn't. But we all know that on an individual level and on a structural level, the system is only working because of slave labor. Can you imagine what would happen if Christians alone said, I'm not going to buy products from companies that don't pay a livable wage? It would turn. 
turn the economy upside down if we alone did that. Can you imagine what would happen if we said, I am not going to buy from companies that pay children five cents a day and employ slave labor? Buy Nike. Everybody's looking at what kind of shoes they're wearing right now. I have Nikes at home. I'm not judging you. We know it. Our economy would collapse. I think we have a responsibility. I think this, this parable calls us to, 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 as people who own businesses or who are managers or are bosses or higher up in your companies, what are you doing to make sure that the people that you employ are making a livable wage, who are making just pay? People shouldn't work 40 hours a week in this society and not be able to afford to live. And frankly, since none of this is ours to begin with, and it's all a gift of God, people should just be able to live. They should just be able to live. I don't know if that sounds communist or socialist. I feel like it sounds like Jesus. We also have a responsibility as people who are employed to use the voice we have to make sure that our companies are not just making more money for the wealthy, but that we're asking questions about wage gaps between men and women, racial wage gaps, economic, climate ethics. Do, do, do we genuinely think that any of these companies are going to stop destroying the environment? They're, again, I was in the Redwoods, and I was reading some of the different signs, and they were saying that this particular habitat was almost completely destroyed, including there are now endangered species of salmon because logging companies were coming in because redwood wood was so valuable. And the companies were basically going to decimate the entire ecosystem until finally somebody put a legal stop to it. This is in like liberal California, right? Where you just like think, oh, like the socialists got control of everything out there. No, the companies were still doing this and they would destroy the environment without conscience to make profit and we as employees in such companies need to be the voice and the conscience that says this is the only creation God has given us and it is a gift that God has given us not for us to abuse and use but for us to receive and share. Finally, I think it is important to note that Jesus does not, in this text, seem to be saying that it is wrong to be wealthy. I want you to notice that I have, in this text, bracketed off because I want to leave Jesus the freedom to challenge that later. What is wrong, and one of the worst wrongs, is to be greedy. And because none of us thinks we're greedy, None of us thinks we're Scrooge, right? None of us thinks we're greedy. 
We need to understand that for Jesus and later for John Wesley, wealth seems to have a way of making the temptation to greed almost impossible to ignore. In other words, while the Venn diagram of wealth and greed is not a complete circle, it's close. Closer than we would be comfortable with. I wanted to say that it's not wrong to be wealthy because of the fact that even uh, the Gospel of Luke would not exist if it weren't for wealthy people, right? Luke, Luke tells us this way back in chapter 1, in the first two verses. He thanks a guy named Theophilus for basically paying for him to research and write the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke would have never even been written if it weren't for a wealthy person. And you and I, we would not have the gospel, any of the Bible today, if it weren't for wealthy people through the Middle Ages and before who paid for the copying of biblical texts over and over, right? So there is absolutely space for the wealthy in the kingdom of God. But riches are also and predominantly to be viewed as a particular temptation that Jesus warned about. They are not, as capitalism tells us, a mere good in themselves. But they are a temptation that we should be very leery of. And if we are wealthy, we should have good accountability practices in place to make sure that how we spend our money is just and good and godly. So how do we distinguish between greed and wealth? The key, I think, is generosity. The refusal to live in the self-centered delusion like the man in the story, the self-centered delusion that I earn this and I deserve this and that others do not. When it comes to this farmer, the issue, this, his success is not itself the problem. And it is not his success that is condemned. What is condemned is his self-indulgence, his neglect of a greater opportunity to provide for others less successful than himself. And on top of that, his self-congratulatory belief that he had made adequate provision for his future. In other words, he had a good retirement plan. I think this radical economic ethic is an overflow of what we encounter at this table. Every single week we come to this table as recipients of God's gift. Bread and juice that are grown by God, by the sunshine and rain that God sent and gives us. At this table, we are a people, as a people are called to think outside of ourselves, to think about God's good, gracious gift to the world. We come all as a needy people, rich and poor, fed with God's goodness and called to go out and share the gift of God's goodness with everyone, especially the poor. We are called at this table to see in Jesus' broken body that it turns out that divestment is really good investment. It saves the world. 